Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my sincere blessing to be in dialogue with Matteo Milan regarding his newly published book, The Black Shirts Dictatorship. Armed Squads, Political Violence, and the Consolidation of Mussolini's Regime, published in New York by Routledge Publishers 2022. Matteo, I'm lucky to be with you. Thank you so much for our time together. Thank you very much, Ari, for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here today. Please, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you are today? Uh, yes, it's a pleasure. So I was born and raised uh, in Padua, actually in the outskirts uh, of the city. Uh, I did my uh, bachelor degree and my master degree and my PhD here at the University of Padua. So this was, uh, under certain aspects, a very traditional Italian career uh, at that time. Uh, I, I think Italian scholars and students didn't move too much uh, at that time. Um, during my PhD, I, did, I carried out a research on the black shirts, which basically then resulted in the Italian version of this book. Uh, but after the PhD, uh, I got a great opportunity that uh, under certain aspects changed uh, my career. I applied for a... a mm, a fellowship uh, um, funded by the Garda Henkel Foundation, which is this very important uh, scientific and uh, academic foundation uh, in Germany, uh, for a scheme which was called Marie Curie Co-Fund, which basically allowed me to spend two years at the University of Oxford in uh, Britain. And this was a very, very important uh, moment for my career. I worked there under the supervision of a colleague and a friend now, uh, Martin Conway. And uh, uh, I worked on a project which was uh, a little bit different from my previous project on the black shirt. Basically, it was a project aiming at studying um, armed associations and groups uh, in Europe before the First World War, during the so-called Belle Epoque. And uh, at that time, I focused uh, basically on Italy, Spain, and France. Uh, working with Martin Conway was a great opportunity for me as he is an expert of post-Second World War uh, Europe, uh, while at that time I was studying a period which was um, basically between the uh, end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. So I was working with a scholar focusing on a much later period, and this was actually... Uh, a great opportunity to open my mind, to uh, absorb different uh, scholarships and different approaches to uh, modern history. Um, after Oxford, I moved to Dublin, where I spent 
almost a, a year, uh, 10 months or so, at the uh, Center for War Studies at the University College Dublin, um, with a project which was a little bit of the prosecution, an extension of my previous project. Uh, and in Dublin, I worked with uh, one of the leading scholars of uh, paramilitarism and political violence uh, in uh, um, the interwar period, who is Robert Gerwart. And uh, also in this case, it, it was really formative, really, really important for my career. Basically, one week uh, after I landed in Dublin, I got the news that uh, um, my application for a major European um, grant, it's called European Research Grant, um, funded by the European Research Council. Uh, this uh, major, ap my application was uh, retained for funding. And basically uh, I got a very important uh, grant to carry out research on pre-1914 armed associations uh, in Central and Western Europe. So basically this project uh, was uh, the, in some way a spin-off, uh, a prosecution of the project that they originally started in Oxford. Um, getting this project was quite demanding uh, at the time, uh, but uh, it was also extremely rewarding as it allowed me to come back to Italy and to come back to Padua, actually, where my uh, partner was uh, living at that time. Uh, so thanks to this project, I got a permanent position here at the University of Padua, a permanent position that uh, I have since uh, 2016, actually, uh, indeed, as, a, uh, as an assistant professor. And I carried out this major project, uh, creating a research group, a research team, uh, till a couple of years ago. And a few months ago, uh, finally, I got a second uh, European Research Council uh, consolidator grant for a new project. Uh, maybe there will be opportunity to, to, to discuss uh, this later on for a new project on gun control and gun cultures uh, in Europe between the uh, 1870s and the 1970s. So uh, I think that my career uh, was uh, a little bit bizarre under certain aspects, as the first part of my career was really traditional. I was basically rooted uh, here at the University of Padua, but at the same time, I had the opportunity to expand my uh, network, to expand my uh, skills and knowledge and scholarship, thanks to um, important fellowship and grants that I got basically from the uh, European Union. Uh, so I think that my profile as a researcher in some way reflects these two uh, dimensions, one which was very local, so to speak, and another which is uh, much broader. Um, and really happy of this uh, profile that I was able to establish. Uh, in the last 15 years or so. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Um, yeah, uh, the book is the result of the research that I carried out during my uh, PhD uh, here at the University of Power. Basically, the books uh, originated from a very simple intuition. Um, so basically, 
um, the great amount of scholarship on fascist black shirts, on fascist squadrismo, focus on the period before the March on Rome. So the period before Mussolini became the head of the government uh, in Italy, basically before October 1922. Uh, uh, Fascists call this period the period of the revolution. Uh, it was a period uh, in which the Squadristi carried out uh, uh, multiple very violent actions, which left uh, about between 2,000 and 3,000 people dead uh, in Italy uh, between 1919 and the end of 1922. It was therefore a period marked by violence in which black shirts played a major role and had um, a very, very important uh, role in making Mussolini the head of the government and basically starting uh, a 20-year uh, dictatorship. So it's pretty obvious that scholars uh, focus on this period. I think it was a period in which Blackshirt played, uh, again, a very, very important role. They were major political actors, and in this way they were able to shape the political action and the political agenda of fascism. So my idea when I started my research and then when I started writing this book was to study uh, what happened next. So from the perspective of a black shirt, uh, you are um, very aware that you played a major role in allowing Mussolini to become the head of the government in making fascist uh, a regime, a political regime, a very institutionalized and solid political regime. At the same time, all the violence that you displayed in the periods before the March of Rome, after the beginning of the fascist government, basically, all this violence was considered similar uh, to criminal activity. So this kind of violence and also the paramilitary organization that the fascists were able to establish, basically was no more needed in the, the new context of Mussolini government. So my idea was to try to look at uh, what happened after the March of Rome to all these people. And we are speaking of uh, thousands and thousands of violent, angry uh, people, uh, the black shirts or squadristi, actually, uh, who were very, very aware of the importance that they played in making uh, fascism a successful uh, political movement. Um, so I, 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 I approach this topic from different angles, and I, I think there will be opportunity to speak about that. And the book is precisely uh, an attempt to look at the long durée, the long-term consequences of fascist violence throughout the fascist regime and after the um, seize of power by the fascists in October 1922. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? Uh, the book tells the story of uh, uh, Squadristi, of these people very uh, used to uh, perform uh, violence in a context, in a political context in which uh, Fascists hold the power, but in which, at least officially, violence was not 
tolerated anymore. Uh, I approach the uh, the theme uh, of the book from different angles, from different perspectives. I focus on how the fascist squad, the armed squads which develop uh, in the period before the March of Rome, how they uh, transform themselves uh, after the March of Rome. Uh, many of them became sporting uh, sport teams. Other became some kind of mutual aid associations. Other became uh, and turned into the so-called fascist militia, which was a paramilitary auxiliary police force, which was funded by the state. Uh, so we can say that Squadrismo continued after the Marshall Rule, but also it changed uh, and it assumed other forms uh, in the process. I also look at the uh, black shirts who were sent to internal uh, exile because they were deemed to be like criminals, um, internal uh, enemies. They were sometimes compared to anti-fascists. But why? Because actually they continued to perform violence in a time in which officially, at least, violence was no more tolerated. So I think that you should understand a very simple fact. Um, after the March of Rome, Mussolini was no more the leader of a, a political party, but he became the head of the government and at the same time the minister of interior. So he became responsible for public order, he became responsible for uh, social, political peace in the country. So in some way, he was the father, uh, the political uh, leader of fascism, fascism, which built its own success on violence. But in a matter of weeks, uh, violence was no more tolerated. If fascists performed violent actions after the March of Rome, basically they were compared to criminals because fascist Mussolini was now in charge of securing the country, of enforcing uh, law and order uh, throughout the country. So you have this black and white uh, situation, which many of the former black shirts actually didn't fully uh, understand. Why I was a hero of the revolution, why Mussolini asked me to kill people, why fascists wanted my violent actions in order to seize power. And now I'm considered like a criminal or uh, actually an anti-fascist because I'm acting against fascism. So you have this very strong um, contraposition within fascism and especially within the shock drops of fascism, within squadrismo. And the books want to investigate these contradictions. Because actually, one of the main arguments of the book is that uh, fascist violence after the March of Rome was, yes, officially uh, um, condemned uh, by uh, Mussolini and other fascist leaders, but at the same time, it was necessary. Uh, Mussolini's regime needed uh, squadristic violence, but at the same time, Mussolini wanted that 
former squadristi uh, now they they need to be disciplined. Uh, they need to be obedient to uh, Mussolini. And the reason why fascist violence was necessary was that uh, Mussolini and other fascist leaders seized power in October, November 1922. But basically, they didn't control the souls, the conscience of Italians. So fascist and its violence was necessary basically to show that uh, the fascist regime was there and is, was there to continue across years. So fascist violence was there to show that no opposition was possible within the fascist regime. And this, in my opinion, and according to other scholars as well, uh, contributed to uh, creates the preconditions uh, of consensus, uh, of consensus and consent to uh, fascism in the uh, in the following years. What is your book's contribution to the study of comparative fascism? Oh yes, uh, I think that my book focuses on Italy uh, for sure. Uh, is it focuses basically only on the in the Italian uh, on the Italian regime, but it also makes some kind of contribution to other um, fields of scholarship. In I, I would say two ways. So the first way is related to the role that black shirts played in other uh, European conflicts, especially in the 1930s. And I'm referring to the uh, so-called Abyssinian War and the uh, Civil War in Spain. Especially uh, related to this second conflict, the, the Spanish Civil War, former Spartanisti who fought during the so-called Fascist Revolution, so before 1922, actually were used uh, by the Fascist regime as organizer of paramilitary groups also during the Spanish uh, Civil War. Of course, they fought on the side of General Francisco Franco. They fought on the side of nationalists uh, in that conflict. Uh, they fought as part of a officially a volunteer army that Mussolini sent to Spain in support of Franco. Uh, in particular, in my book, I focus on uh, a very interesting uh, Spoderista, a figure of Spoderista called named uh, Arconovaldo Bonaccorsi. He is from Bologna. And for his entire career, basically, he uh, had just one job, uh, the Spoderista. So for his entire career, he was a, a member of the shock troop of Farshev. Uh, he also had a sort of a secondary job. Officially, I mean, he was an attorney, but basically he used violence and intimidation and threat and menace also uh, when uh, acting as an attorney in the civil processes uh, and trials and so on and so forth. Uh, anyway, at the beginning of the Spanish Civil War, Mussolini sent Bonaccorsi to the Balearic Island. And there he organized 
a, a paramilitary group, which basically spread death and terror uh, in the island and played a very, very important role in securing the nationalist, meaning Francoist, uh, power uh, into uh, the island. Actually, this originated also a lot of conflict between Italians and uh, Spanish nationalists, but I think that Bonacorsi uh, is a very important figure and um, actors also in connection with uh, scholarship on the Spanish Civil War. Um, the second aspect uh, through which this book uh, contributed to uh, the study of um, uh, comparative fascism is more general. Uh, I think that the book makes an important contribution to study uh, what happened after uh, so-called revolutionary uprising. So what happened to the diehard shock troops once they seized power? I think it is a very important uh, issue in current scholarship. Um, it's an issue that has not been very well investigated, uh, perhaps, um, as many scholarship we are used to think that once they have seized power, the, the diehard, the more violent sectors of revolutionary movements tend to be absorbed uh, into the regime that they contributed to create. But I think this is a quite simplistic uh, pictures. And as my book show, violence played a very important role also uh, in Italian fascism. And here I would like to say a final thing uh, regarding this question, as I think that for a long period, uh, the Italian fascist regime was considered by many scholars, starting from Anna Harrod, uh, but also other scholars, was considered as a quite mild regime, of course, compared to uh, the Nazi regime in Germany. Uh, a Spanish uh, scholar, Javier Rodrigo, defined this reduction uh, and Hitler, which is basically reduction to Hitler, so to speak. It's a Latin um, phrase. Uh, so basically, Nazism uh, acted as a sort of a black hole and absorb all the violence, uh, so to speak, uh, that was uh, going on in Europe in the interwar period. This contributed to uh, see the Italian fascist regime as a generally a mild, non-violent uh, regime, at least compared to, <coughs> sorry, compared to Nazi Germany. Uh, and my book, uh, I think contributed to show that uh, the fascist regime was actually a violent regime, even after the Manchur rule, uh, that violence played a major role uh, in the fascist regime. But at the same time, such kind of violence was in some way generally Italian. So was a form of violence 
that was peculiar to the fascist regime. It was less little, but it was extremely widespread. And uh, uh, I think it contributed to change and to influence uh, not only uh, political institutions, not only uh, political parties, uh, but also it contributed to change and influence the consciousness and the souls of Italians. What is specifically meant by the term squadrismo? Can you explain this term for beginners and laypersons and for people who might not be familiar with Italian history? Yeah. Uh, thanks for uh, the question. Um, probably I, I should have explained uh, at the beginning, but it, it, squadrismo is a quite difficult term to translate into uh, English. Basically, squadrismo means the um, organization, but also the political cultures of the movement of the fascist armed squads, which operated in Italy after uh, the foundation of fascism in 1919. Um, so by squadrismo, we mean all the people who acted and performed violent acts as members of the paramilitary wing of the fascist party, but also we mean the political cultures that move uh, these people. They believe in the uh, supremacy and the central role of the nation. Um, they hate towards uh, the so-called subversive, uh, meaning socialist, communist, Bolsheviks, but also they hate and anger against the liberal regime, the traditional elites uh, in Italy. So by squadrismo, we mean a lot of things. And again, it's a term that uh, has usually been uh, used for the period before the march of Rome. So before fashion says uh, our uh, in Italy, but at the same time, as I hope the book uh, showed, it, it's a term that had a very long story uh, throughout the fascist regime and uh, um, uh, till at least the 1945 and maybe even uh, later. What new insights are presented in your study regarding the March on Rome? In 1922. Yeah, um, the March of Rome was in some way uh, a very, in many ways, it was a very major foundational uh, event for the uh, for fascism. Um, the March of Rome was the beginning of uh, the fascist um, states of power and the beginning, basically, of Mussolini's government. So now, also thanks to very important uh, contribution from colleagues, also from the University of Padua, like Giulia uh, Albanese, the March of Rome as, uh, as, is not considered anymore as the simple march to Rome uh, of the fascist wars in October 1922, but the March of Rome um, was also the systematic occupation uh, of um, many, many cities uh, throughout northern and central Italy 
in the days immediately before uh, Mussolini took power um, in, uh, uh, in the late uh, October 1922. So the contribution of my book to this complex uh, event uh, is, I think, twofold. On the one side, I show in the book that for many squadristi, the revolution was not ended with uh, the appointment of Mussolini as head of the government, but actually that act was the beginning of the revolution. For many squadristi, so for the more radical section, for the more radical wing of the fascist party, the revolution just started with Mussolini in power as prime minister uh, of the Italian government. Uh, because a lot of people wanted to get rid of a um, uh, traditional liberal elite with a king, some of them, they wanted a true revolution. And they believe that this revolution uh, cannot result simply in a sort of uh, traditional political agreement um, and in a coalition government as uh, Mussolini first Mussolini government actually was. Um, the second aspect, which is, I think, much more important that my book investigates, is that for many squadristi, uh, the March of Rome was also um, the, uh, a turning point in their personal life. So I think that the book combines a more institutional uh, dimension, the dimension of squadrismo as a collective movement and a collective political culture, and combine this with a very personal insights uh, in the lives of many squadristi, so a more individual dimension. And I think that to understand, to fully understand squadrismo after the March of Rome, we should take into consideration these two aspects. A more general one, a more institutional one, a more collective one, and a more individual aspect. And I, I think that from this perspective, the March on Rome was not only a political turning point for the Squadristi, but it was also a, a personal, uh, individual uh, turning point for many of them, which basically changed their life, pushed them to adapt to a very new uh, situation that I uh, I have tried to describe in my previous answers. Um, there is then perhaps a third aspect actually, uh, which is the fact that um, traditional scholarship, and I'm thinking to uh, a very, very important historian, uh, who wrote a major and uh, seminal uh, Mussolini's uh, biography, Renzo De Felice. Renzo De Felice actually stated that uh, the real, actual fascist regime started only in January 1925. So, uh, more than two years after the March of Rome. Why January 1925? Because uh, the 3rd of January 1925, Mussolini gave a very important speech in the parliament in which basically he uh, 
took full responsibility for the murder of the leader of uh, anti-fascist opposition, uh, Giacomo Matteotti, who was killed by some fascists uh, six months before, so in June 1924. According to De Felice and this traditional interpretation, uh, only from this moment on, uh, fascists became a true dictatorship. The period between the March on Rome and early January 1925 was considered not so different from a continuation of the previous liberal uh, government or the previous liberal regime. So Mussolini was the head of the government, but things, according to De Felice, were not so different from a, a previous uh, government under, say, uh, traditional leaders like Giovanni Giolitti or um, Luigi Farta. Actually, I think that my book shows that things were very different. And I believe, along with other historians, and hopefully not alone in this, that the fascist regime actually started in uh, October 1922, started with the March on Rome, uh, and they started with the first um, laws, um, regulations, and decrees uh, passed by the first Mussolini's government. Curiously, some of these first measures that Mussolini, Mussolini's government took in the first week after uh, taking power, uh, some of these measures were actually um, had a lot to do with Squadrismo. And I just mentioned here the so-called Ovilio's uh, amnesty or Ovilio's pardon and the creation of uh, uh, the fascist militia, uh, the national militia for, um, uh, the volunteer militia for national security. Who were the Benito Mussolini regime's primary victims? What happened to them? Oh, yes. Uh, this is a complicated question. Uh, so, my uh, a, a very important scholar of uh, uh, fascist and uh, um, Nazi uh, regime and paramilitary groups, Sven Reichardt, uh, claim, and I totally agree with him, that uh, fa Italian fascists and uh, Nazis are different uh, under many aspects, of course, but uh, regarding the role of paramilitary troops are different um, because many of the victims of Italian fascists uh, were before the March of Rome, so before Mussolini uh, took power and seized power, and the opposite happened with the Nazi regime. So very few big things before 1920, uh, 1933, many, many big things after uh, the seize of power uh, by uh, Hitler in uh, January 1933. So the victims of uh, Squadristi, of black shirts uh, of fascism, were mainly uh, anti-fascists. Uh, meaning socialist and communist and some uh, member of the Catholic Party. Um, 
there were also simple, you know, ordinary people, bystanders who were involved in fascist violent action. And uh, people tend to forget that uh, Mussolini's action uh, squads killed between 2,000 and 3,000 people between 1920 and 1922. This was one of the most violent, perhaps the most violent period in modern Italian uh, story. And it's something that is not very present, in my opinion, uh, among the general public. Uh, so many of the victims of fascist regime were killed. Um, between, again, 2,000, 3,000 people were killed before the March of Rome. A few hundreds were killed after the March of Rome. And I, I focus on oh, a little bit on these victims also uh, in my book. One of the aspects that they think that the book stress is that, this is perhaps sad to say, but the death toll doesn't explain the uh, extension um, and how pervasive was fascist violence in Italy, both before and after the March of Rome. What I'm trying to say is that along with uh, a brutal uh, assassination of many people, uh, of many opponents to fascism, but also, again, by standards and ordinary people as well, uh, along with all these people killed, by fascist, there were thousands and thousands of people which were simply wounded. Some of them were mutilated um, because of fascist violence. Uh, they were beaten up, uh, they were shot, they were uh, wounded, sometimes in a very, very brutal way. And many of these people uh, with, uh, who were uh, wounded or mutilated actually uh, uh, died uh, several months or years after uh, the uh, original beating and the, the, the original uh, violence that were uh, performed, uh, that was performed against them. So today, unfortunately, we don't have a really clear picture of the extension and the uh, capillarity of fascist uh, violence in Italy, uh, both before and after the March of Rome. Uh, so I think that, again, as I mentioned before, uh, this is really important because I think that we should understand the specificities and uh, the uh, peculiar features of uh, squadristi violence, meaning the, the, the peculiarities of fascist, Italian fascist uh, violence, which was really different uh, from uh, Nazi uh, violence. How bad was Benito Mussolini? How does your study help answer this question? Wow. Um, so Mussolini, uh, I think, was a very, um, uh, so to speak, I mean, to, to, to answer it straightforwardly, uh, to your question was a, a very bad person, of course. Though he was always very uh, careful not being involved directly with violence. So 
Mussolini, it's very hard to find, you know, episodes of Mussolini with uh, a revolver in his hands, killing people, shooting at the opponents, so to speak. But as many dictators, he was, of course, responsible of major uh, episodes of uh, uh, violence, of very violent campaign, which were unleashed by fascist uh, troops, by the Italian army, especially during the Second World War. And also, this is very important, and this has been investigated in the recent years, uh, the fascist regime was extremely brutal, extremely violent. Um, in colonial campaigns, first in Libya and then in uh, Ethiopia, uh, in which the Italian army and fascist troops use poison uh, gas, use uh, mm. built concentration camps, use uh, violence, indiscriminated violence against civilians. Of course, in the colonial context, uh, a lot of... Uh, um, it, it's a very complex uh, context, of course, racial... Uh, bias and racial uh, discrimination played a major role in legitimizing and in some way authorizing this kind of violence. But this violence, and there are documents on that, was ordered in many cases, uh, in the great majority of cases actually, was ordered by Mussolini himself. He had no hesitation in ordering uh, his troops uh, to uh, perform very, very violent acts. Uh, and I think that even in the 1920s, when fascism was not involved in major colonial campaigns, well, there is the exception of Libya, which is, of course, really, really important in, in this period, but also, I mean, in the in the domestic sphere, Mussolini was had no hesitation in using uh, violence, as many historians have shown, I just mentioned Mauro Canali, uh, he, showed he uh, had a major responsibility in the uh, murder of Giacomo Matteotti, who was basically the leader of the opposition in uh, the murder happening in June 1924. Uh, regarding Spodristi, uh, more specifically, uh, I think that Mussolini uh, played, again, a very important role as he was uh, had a very contradictory uh, position. So publicly, he always condemned uh, fascist violence against the civilians. I'm speaking after the, 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 the I'm referring to the period after the Marshall Road. But in private, he always had uh, Spadristi to get away. Uh, with uh, criminal um, trials, with uh, um, imprisonment, and so on and so forth. Because as he actually said once, he needed uh, a violent and uh, obedient um, group of people who was ready to use violence to defend uh, fascism and to defend Mussolini himself. Can you explain the concept squadrismo as a sport? This oh, yeah. um, is presented I, I, at length in the book. Can you elaborate on what it means and what you're trying yeah. to teach us through this concept? 
Yeah, um, in the book, I, I devoted one chapter, uh, almost one chapter, to uh, squadrismo as a sport. Um, and again, this has basically two meanings. The first one is the more immediate one. Um, after the March of Rome, squadrismo became officially, at least, illegal. So what happened to many armed squads? So basically, they turned into uh, sport teams, so football and soccer uh, teams uh, were uh, full of squadristi. They were not very good in playing soccer, uh, but uh, it was some kind of a way to disguise the uh, the former uh, armed schools. Basically, they changed their name, but they uh, continued to perform very violent acts against uh, opponents or even sometimes against other fascists. Um, so in, in the book, I gave multiple examples. One of that is the, the, uh, an example from Genova, from the city and port of Genova, and is the so-called Squadra Vola, Vola after the name of a fascist who was uh, killed in action. Uh, originally, the the, the Vola uh, squad was actually a, a, a part of the armed squad of fascism, but after the March of Rome, it began, uh, became a sort of uh, sporting uh, team. It was eventually absorbed into one of the uh, most important, in some way, it still exists, uh, teams, uh, soccer teams of uh, the uh, city of Genova. Um, but actually, they were not very good, as I mentioned before, uh, in playing soccer, as it was uh, an opportunity to hide the violent potential of fascist squad under, you know, this sort of idea of a sport association, a sport team, and so on and so forth. So it was a way through which Squadrismo continued his life across the uh, Mussolini's dictatorship. This is perhaps the most obvious aspect. The second aspect uh, has much more to do with the individual uh, dimension of violence for many squadristi. So uh, many historians, starting from uh, Emilio Gentile uh, and Sven Reichardt uh, again, stress uh, a very important fact, in my opinion. So violence performed by the squadristi was not simply a kind of violence uh, carried out to achieve political aims. Violence for the squadristi was important in itself, was a way of showing their courage, their masculinity. Uh, it was a way to keep the group uh, together. It was a way to make sense under certain aspects to the lives of these individuals. So it was also uh, a fun, was something funny, was something uh, nice for these people. It was actually like a sport. Uh, 
committing violence was morally uh, legitimated for the members of the fascist squads, uh, and it was therefore for many of them uh, was not something bad, but was something nice. It was a way to uh, impose uh, themselves and their political culture. And this is true, I think, also after the March of Rome and in many of these uh, uh, sports teams, uh, like uh, action squad, armed squads, uh, I believe that uh, squadristi continued to perform violence as a sport. In what ways was Benito Mussolini's consolidation of power in Italy similar to and different from Francisco Franco's in Spain and Adolf Hitler's in Germany? Okay. Uh, so, the one very uh, important aspect is the way through which the three dictators uh, took power, uh, in my opinion. As I mentioned before, uh, Mussolini took power after a period uh, which was marked and characterized by extremely high levels of violence for a country uh, which was not um, destroyed in its institution. So we have a legitimate government in Italy at that time, we had police forces, we have an army, all institutions were more or less working in that period. Um, and this is why the notion, the concept of civil war applied to uh, Italy in the period 1920-1922 is quite controversial and there is no agreement among uh, historians. The German case was really different as Hitler was able to create a, a major electoral and political consensus around its own movement before becoming uh, first chancellor and then president of uh, Germany. We should remember that at the moment of the uh, March on Rome, there were more or less, uh, less uh, a little bit more than 30 uh, members of parliament, fascist members of parliament in the Italian uh, lower uh, house. So a very, very small number of fascists were MPs, uh, representatives in, um, in the Italian parliament. So fascism at that time didn't have electoral uh, consensus, didn't have political uh, power in the sense of uh, support uh, gained through uh, elections. And this is why, according to Reichard, Sven Reichard, violence played a much more important role in Italy uh, uh, than in Germany um, in the sides of power, uh, therefore in the sides of power by Mussolini uh, compared to uh, Hitler. The Spanish case and uh, the case of Francisco Franco is again uh, different as Franco was able to become dictator uh, only after a very, very brutal, violent and uh, um, uh, very uh, terrifying civil war, which lasted for three years. 
So the Spanish civil war was an actual civil war. I think that there is no uh, doubt about that. And the, the number of people, uh, casualties, people who, who was uh, were killed and uh, injured uh, during the civil war was much, much higher compared to Italy. Um, and this is why during the Spanish civil war, paramilitary organization similar under certain aspects to the fascist squad played after all a quite uh, minor role uh, in allowing Franco to uh, seize power. Of course, there was like the Falange and the other movements, but basically the civil war was uh, fought between regular armies. And again, this is something pretty different uh, compared to uh, Italy, in which the battle uh, and the main struggle was among uh, a party militia, like the fascist party and its uh, opponent, the, the, the socialists. Of course, things change pretty much and pretty tragically uh, after uh, the seize of power, as as we all know, uh, the German dictatorship became a very uh, brutal and uh, genocidal uh, regime. Um, again, uh, however, we should not uh, we should not uh, underestimate the impact of violence performed by uh, the Italian fascist regime after the March of Rome. It was different, for sure, from the Nazi one, but it was also really peculiar, and it, generally speaking, I think it was much more violent than uh, the general public, sometimes also some historians, usually see. What does your book teach us about prisons and police in fascist Italy? Oh, yeah. Um, I think that the book shows that um, police forces and I mean the official state police forces, like state police, uh, Carabinieri, and others, uh, were not the only actors to enforce law and order and to carry out uh, violent action against opponents in the fascist regime, so after 1922. I think that my book shows pretty well that on the one side, you have these official uh, forces, which were state forces, that uh, since the 1922, uh, actually, immediately after the March of Rome, were controlled now by fascist leaders. Uh, so on the one side, you have the police forces, the traditional police forces, and on the other side, you have this kind of informal policy carried out by the fascist walls. It was informal, it was unofficial, but it existed throughout the fascist dictatorship. So on the one side, uh, you have official repression, but on the other side, you have this underground, unofficial, low-level series of intimidations, violent acts, which were performed and carried out by fascist squadristi throughout the duration of the fascist regime. Sometimes the two forms of violence uh, interacted. Just a short example, um, it was pretty common for political opponents to be sent to jail 
by ordinary tribunals, by the special tribunals, but also it was some kind of political uh, tribunal uh, in Italy, but also they were sent to an internal exile and so on and so forth. So there was this very uh, broad and articulated uh, repressive police uh, regime operating pretty well, especially after 1925 and 1926 in Italy. But again, this was only the official uh, side of repression in Italy. So it was pretty common that after an opponent was released from uh, jail, of from internal uh, exile, the so-called confino di polizia, he was not only followed by police forces, but it was often beaten, intimidated, uh, uh, harassed by black shirts and other squadristen. So this uh, unofficial, informal uh, way of repression was crucial in intimidating, in repressing, not simply explicit political opponents, uh, but also in showing that no alternative was possible to fascists for these people. So even if the state doesn't uh, repress, yeah. sorry, even if the state doesn't uh, carry out official repression, Sorry, no, even if the state doesn't carry out official repression, there were always some black shirts willing to intimidate, willing to uh, beat up, uh, to uh, harass uh, political opponents and sometimes also ordinary citizens. So I think that the book showed pretty well the complementarity between black shirts, uh, violence, and police uh, repression. Can you explain the phenomenon of confino di polizia? Yes. What this specifically happened to somebody? Yeah. Uh, confino di polizia uh, can be translated um, with uh, internal exile, perhaps. Again, it's an Italian word and institution that is not easy to translate into English. So I will try to explain how it works. Um, so basically, it was introduced in November 1926 by the fascist government, and it was a way to send people to very far away places uh, compared to where they were living. Um, and it was basically a way to keep... Uh, away from the home, home uh, their own cities and familiar context, basically political opponents. It was very different from a criminal trial, as you, um, as the uh, defendant didn't have uh, lawyers, uh, the, the, there was actually uh, there was not an ordinary uh, trial, but basically uh, there was a commission, the so-called uh, Commissione Provinciale per il Confino di Polizia, Provincial Commission for uh, Confino di Polizia, which was formed by the prefect, 
the uh, chief of police in a, provi in a province um, uh, and uh, official from the fascist militia. And they basically, uh, they decide where and for how long send someone to uh, Confino di Polizia. So basically there was no trial uh, because, and this is I think a crucial point, to, in order to be sent to uh, Confino di Polizia, it was not necessary that someone committed an actual crime. You may be simply a suspect of carrying out anti-fascist activities of subversive activities. Police arrive in your own house. They put into jail for quite a long period sometimes. In the meantime, this commission decides uh, whether or not you were guilty of anti-fascist activities, anti-national activities, and so on and so forth. And in the many, many cases, you were found guilty and you were therefore sent to very, very uh, isolated places, usually in southern Italy or in Sardinia or even in small islands. The interesting thing that my book investigate is that uh, also some of the former black shirts were sent to internal exile. They were sent to Confino di Polizia. Why? Because they were considered as opponent to the fascist regime. They were considered enemies of the fascist regime. They were considered basically uh, criminals or troublemakers. They were considered hooligans. They were considered indisciplined people. Um, why they were considered as such? Because basically they carried out and continued to perform violent acts. The funny thing is that many of these violent actions were not simply the results of the uh, of these people, but it was the result of orders by fascist leaders, provincial and sometimes national fascist leaders. So these quadristi were carrying out uh, violent actions because they were ordered to do so by fascist leaders. Again, in a context and in a period in which violence was no more tolerated by fascists, but it was nevertheless necessary for the reason that I explained uh, a few minutes ago. So many of these quadristi were sent to political uh, exile, to uh, Confino di Polizia, but in many cases, they were released immediately after they were condemned, so after a few weeks. From my perspective, it was extremely interesting to look at the documents and the records in the archives um, of these people. Because, you know, you have personal files which are full of letters, of personal letters by former black shirts, in which they tell their mother, their family, as well as they tell Mussolini himself how brave they were, how violent they were, and what fascism and what uh, squadrismo meant for them. So I think that these are extraordinary uh, documents to uh, extremely useful, extremely fascinating to understand 
what meant to be a black shirt, to be a squadrista for uh, these people. And so I, I was really happy when I had the chance to uh, find this document, which are pretty new. They were um, never, they have never been studied in a systematic way uh, before. Uh, of course, there is, uh, again, uh, much more work to do, uh, perhaps, and I hope that other historians will work on such kind of records. But again, they are extremely fascinating to show both how the fascist regime actually worked and how squadristi perceive themselves within this regime. Can you explain the origins and meaning of the term black shirts? Oh, yeah. Um, mm, so black shirt uh, is basically a synonymous for uh, squadristi, and the other certain aspect is a synonymous for fascist. Um, the origin came from uh, the experience of the First World War. During the First World War, the Italian uh, shock troops, the so-called Arditi, used to wear a black shirt, actually. Um, it was part of the uniform. This was also used after the conclusion of the war by uh, the so-called legionari, who were basically the people under the command of the poet and former soldier Gabriele D'Annunzio uh, during uh, the Fiume crisis, 1919-1920. Uh, <clears throat> and basically the fascists took inspiration, so to speak, both from the Italian shock troops and D'Annunzio's uh, troops uh, for their own uniform. The nice thing, interesting thing, curious thing perhaps, is that the black shirt became, uh, you know, a very common uh, part of fascist uniform quite later on. We don't, uh, I mean, we shouldn't imagine uh, and think of young squadristi carrying out violence actions uh, wearing the black shirt. Usually these black shirts were made of silk, so they were pretty expensive. So they basically uh, used to uh, wear the black shirts only for official uh, occasions, for official ceremonies, during funerals, during public meetings, during uh, um, uh, parades, and, and so on and so forth. At least before the March of Rome, the black shirt was, you know, the the the, the uniform for the important occasions was not the uh, everyday uniform of the black shirt, despite the name. And how does your study recontextualize Italy's invasion of Ethiopia and Italy's intervention in the Spanish Civil War? Yeah, um, I. Um, in one of the final chapters of the book, I explore again the 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 as I mentioned the biography of the Arconovaldo Bonaccorsi, who was a very important, at least in my opinion, but also in some way, you know, very uh, representative uh, squadrista uh, um, in Italy, and uh, he uh, had um, he played a quite important role uh, during the Spanish Civil War. 
where he was sent by Mussolini to the Balearic Island, and there he organized a paramilitary uh, group uh, called the Death Dragons, um, and it was responsible, uh, it was the main uh, perpetrators of several violent acts and uh, death uh, in the island. So what the book stress is that uh, people with skills and a background as a squadristi became useful again for the fascist regime in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, Bonacorsi was also uh, sent some years later to uh, Ethiopia after the invasion uh, of the country. Uh, so basically a little bit before the, uh, the outbreak of the Second World War. So he didn't play a major role during the invasion uh, of the country, but only later on after the, 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 the experience in Spain. And again, there he used the uh, his uh, skills that he had acquired uh, before the March of Rome, so between 1920 and 1922. He used these skills, he used his background as a quadrista to perform violent actions during the Second World War uh, fighting uh, in uh, Ethiopia. And I think that under this aspect, there is a clear continuity between the experience of um, uh, violence before the March of Rome and violence perpetrated by former squadristi, or maybe it would be more correct to say new squadristi um, during the Spanish Civil War, as well as during the invasion of Ethiopia and even the Second World War. But the book also offers other uh, minor examples of this uh, continuity and the involvement of uh, uh, former squadristi in uh, the Spanish Civil War and the uh, Abyssinian War. What is your book's contribution to the study of totalitarianism? Oh uh, yeah, I, I think that again. Thanks for the question. It's a very, uh, it's a wonderful question, and it's also quite complicated for me to answer. But I will try, nevertheless. Um, I think that uh, several scholars, scholars like Hannah Arendt, uh, but also other, uh, used to uh, define Italian fascism as a, a weak totalitarian regime, not a fully accomplished, a fully uh, totalitarian regime. But it was, you know, something that aspired to be totalitarian, but it was never really totalitarian. And again, here, the main comparison is with uh, Germany and uh, um, the Soviet regime in Russia. Uh, what the book, I think, uh, shows is that because of the very long role and very, very important role that violence played throughout the fascist dictatorship, not only in its initial phase, but throughout the 20-year um, duration of the fascist dictatorship. Because of the importance of violence, because of the importance of squadrismo, I think that uh, the Italian fascist regime was much more totalitarian than we usually think. 
And the reason is that violence, in my opinion, played a major role in defining the features, the characteristics of the fascist regime, and played also a major role in uh, destroying any possibility of opposition to the fascist regime. So perhaps using uh, an Arab war, uh, the Italian fascist regime was an imperfect totalitarian regime. But I think it was much more totalitarian than we usually expect, that violence played a much more important and uh, uh, persistent role throughout the duration of the fascist regime. Um, so I think that under the aspect of the role played by violence and paramilitaries throughout the duration of the fascist regime, my books can uh, contribute uh, also to debate on totalitarianism. Uh, in a comparative way. What does the term Ras mean? What does the term Rasismo mean? Can you explain these terms? Yeah. Uh, Ras uh, were basically Ethiopian uh, uh, local uh, chiefs and leaders. Uh, they were usually uh, leading uh, ethnic groups in uh, uh, the former uh, Ethiopian empires. Uh, it was a term that was used basically as a synonymous of fascist leader. Uh, why? Because uh, fascist leaders, and especially leaders of Squadrismo, as Ethiopian Ras had an army under their own command. So fascist leaders uh, were not only political readers, leaders, but it were also military, or actually paramilitary leaders of uh, armed squads um, again in the 1919-1922 period. But the term then continued to be used to as a synonymous of fascist uh, leader uh, again. Racismo was basically uh, the phenomenon describing the role uh, of different fascist rights. So with the term racism, we, it, it's usually a derogatory term. It's a negative term uh, because it uh, described the phenomenon of small uh, fascist groups under the rule of a fascist leader, the RAS, acting uh, throughout Italy. So with the term of racismo, we describe the autonomous, uh, very hostile to discipline, uh, very uh, riotous uh, attitude of fascist leaders in the initial phase of the fascist movement and then of the fascist regime. Uh, just to clarify, the term was not used and employed by fascists after the Abyssinian War 1935-1936, but it was used much more uh, early on, uh, as it was a quite common term uh, in Italian um, uh, language because of the experience, of the colonial experience of liberal Italy in Ethiopia, which resulted 
in uh, usually, you know, mass the and very uh, bloody defeats by uh, of the Italian armies by the Ethiopian armies in the late nineteenth uh, century. So it was a term which was pretty common uh, among Italian people and was used by fascists to describe the autonomous political and military powers of many of their leaders. What kinds of lynchings took place in fascist Italy? Oh, uh, lynchings? Uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, lynchings were pretty common, not, well, common is maybe a little bit like excessive, I mean, they, they took place uh, during the um, period before the martial rule. Uh, people was beaten uh, to death, were killed um, by fascist sports. However, in uh, this was in many cases the results of uh, uh, excessive violence. So lynchings were not ritualized, so to speak, as they were, uh, it's not my cup of tea, but I guess they were in American history. Sometimes, uh, nevertheless, they happen. Um, and again, they were the results of uh, excessive violence usually performed by the black shirts. Uh, What's interesting to uh, stress, in my opinion, is that sometimes uh, the black shirts perform excessive uh, violence. So violence which was not necessary to harm to uh, or even to kill their opponent. They want to destroy not only uh, the opponent, but also the body of the uh, of their political enemy. And this happened in many cases uh, before the March of Rome, but also after the March of Rome. And in my book, I stress a very important important uh, episode, which is the so-called Turin massacre, which happened in December 1922, in which the bodies of uh, some uh, anti-fascist uh, opponents were humiliated and uh, in many cases, uh, destroyed uh, by the fascists in a very brutal and gruesome uh, way, which uh, uh, was really, really important uh, also from a symbolic point of view as it aimed to show the extension and the uh, brutality of fascist violence in this period. What is your book's contribution to the study of political violence? Oh, yeah. Uh, this is a surely a broad uh, question. Uh, it's very hard to define what political violence is. There is a lot of debate among historians. It's a general con a concept for someone is uh, too general, for others is uh, um, it is perhaps too uh, specific. Um, so my contribution to political violence is, um, again, linked to the fact that political violence was a multifaceted uh, phenomenon, at least in fascist Italy. It happened in many ways. Uh, the book shows that along with official state repression, you have black shirts 
repression, which was a complementary, was not a, a, a different kind of, of uh, repression, was complementary. It it, it, it it fit very well and worked very well with official violence uh, performed by the state. But the book shows also that political violence was crucial, not only in killing uh, uh, political opponents and killing political enemies, but in influencing uh, personal attitude among the general public, among ordinary people. It changed the way people approach to uh, ordinary life, so to speak. I mean, fascist violence was important because it was uh, extremely widespread. It was also a low-intensity violence. I'm speaking of the, uh, of the period after the Manchur Rome, of course. Uh, it was a very widespread and low-intensity violence. But it was a violence that was not always performed against well-identified political enemies. It was sometimes performed without any specific reasons against bystanders, against ordinary people. I mentioned uh, the, uh, the so-called uh, massacre of Turin in December 1922. In, in that occasion, also ordinary people who were not anti-fascist, were not uh, enemies of fascism, were killed. Because it was a way to show that fascism was omnipresent in the, the political, uh, on the political scene. It was uh, pervasive. It was... Uh, not afraid of mm, anything. It was not afraid of political consequences, of criminal consequences. So the book shows that uh, political violence was a multifaceted phenomenon, and in post-1922 Italy was an extremely widespread phenomenon that, in my opinion, contributed very much to the consolidation of the fascist regime not only political terms, but also because it was able to influence uh, individual um, individuals, uh, individual uh, consciousness, um, showing the uh, extension uh, of fascist rule and showing uh, that nobody basically was safe under the fascist regime. And I think that, again, this a uh, performative role played by fascist violence in spreading fear and uh, sometimes terror among the general public uh, is a quite underestimated uh, topic and uh, I really hope that it will be investigated further by other scholars uh, because I think it's really, really important to understand the peculiarities of fascist regime um, throughout its existence. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Uh, yeah. Uh, as the, I mentioned in my first answer uh, in this interview, I uh, worked uh, in the last year um, on armed uh, associations in Europe before uh, the outbreak of the First World War, basically between 1890s and 1914. Um, in that project, I, um, uh, I I worked again 
on political violence, a little bit on paramilitaries, on armed organizations. And I would like to stress the connection between paramilitaries and uh, democratic processes, uh, which were going on, which were occurring in Europe before the March of Rome. Uh, sorry, <laughs> before the outbreak of the First World War. Um, uh, I'm working on a book manuscript uh, on this project, which basically connects different kinds of armed associationism, ranging from shooting clubs to auxiliary police to civic militia to youth uh, armed organizations, connecting these armed associations with processes of democratization, nationalization, transformation, which were going on in Europe before the March of Rome, uh, again, sorry, before 1914. And uh, again, as I mentioned, I uh, was awarded a new uh, major grant uh, to work on the gun question uh, in Europe between mid-19th century to uh, mid-20th century, uh, because I, I, I think it's, mm, it's interesting to say uh, that uh, before the First World War, Europe was a continent full of guns and full of uh, small firearms. Uh, people had, in many cases, free access to uh, guns. There were no uh, registration, there were no licensing of guns in many European countries. Italy was an exception in this uh, framework. And uh, everything changed with the First World War and the extraordinary measures that uh, European government took to deal with the war and the total mobilization of the conflict. Of course, when we speak of gun question, gun control, gun cultures, uh, immediately the American case came to uh, mind. Uh, it's like, you know, there is a huge scholarship uh, on that. So my idea is basically to uh, see what was going on at that time in Europe because as I mentioned, at least before 1914, Europe was a little bit more similar to the US than we usually uh, think and expect. So I move away from uh, fascism, I move away from uh, um, high levels of political violence, but I'm still working on the connections between uh, statehood and uh, violence, uh, with a focus now more on uh, democratic context, peaceful context, uh, and not uh, only on civil wars or uh, fascist regimes. I wish you the very best with your scholarship ahead. Thank it you. sounds phenomenal and so precious and so important. Thank you very much, Ari, very much. Appreciate it. I would like to end by conveying my heartfelt gratitude to you for your eloquence and erudition in the course of our dialogue, and also for all the sacrifice invested in preparing such a remarkable book. Thank you very much. You are very kind, and thank you very much for the opportunity. As we end our dialogue today, I am your host on the New Books and History podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today I've been in dialogue with Matteo Milan, We've been discussing his newly published book, The Black Shirts Dictatorship, Armed Squads, Political Violence, and the Consolidation of Malus 
of Mussolini's regime, published in New York by Routledge 2022. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ari.